Hello and welcome to I Really Wish You Hadn't. This is a podcast about people and businesses that have made horrible mistakes, have fallen apart at the seams, or have just been generally awful since their inception. They're the kind of people and businesses that make you think, man, I really wish you hadn't. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the very first episode of I Really Wish You Hadn't. I'm Michael Bentley, and along with my co-host, Cayman McMahon, and our producer, Colin Moore, we're going to guide you through instances where someone or something has fallen from grace. This week, we will be covering video rental giant Blockbuster. Now, whether or not you grew up during Blockbuster's golden years in the 90s or just recognize it from its poorly repurposed torn movie ticket sign that's advertising your local hair salon, we will be covering all the nitty-gritty details of that blue and yellow relic of the past. The story of Blockbuster begins, as many great stories do, with oil prices. (laughs) What? Yeah, starts with oil prices. All right, you're going to have to explain that. Uh, In April of 1980, the price of oil per barrel was $125. Uh-huh. This was great news to David Cook, founder of David P. Cook and Associates. I promise this comes back to Blockbuster. <laughs> okay. David Cook also happens to be the guy who started Blockbuster. Oh, well, that, oh, kind of a spoiler, but continue, yeah. There, you know what? That's where, that's where it cycles back. <laughs> okay. So he's, right now, he's not the founder of Blockbuster. He's the founder of David P. Cook and Associates. Um, this is a company that specialized in revolutionary technology within the field of oil and gas. Unfortunately for David Cook, the price of oil began to fall, and just four years later, the price of oil per barrel was half of what it was uh, in 1980. So Cook began to look for a new market to dominate with his technological expertise. The story of Blockbuster isn't so much a story about video rental coming into its own, but more a story of how the emergence of new technology allowed new industries to grow to dominate the market. After studying a home video business, David Cook realized that through the use of database technology and barcodes, he could keep track of thousands of movies rather than the few hundred that were possible using pen and paper. So basically he came in and, you know, with his knowledge of database, was able to just completely wipe the floor with anybody that tried to go toe to toe with him. It's funny how they like started as a company with like revolutionary technology and... As we will come to find out, they're a company that completely died because they refused to revolutionize their technology. Yeah, I mean, like, they were the Netflix of 1980. They came in and, like, because they were so forward-thinking, nobody could compete. And, yeah, like you said, I... We're, that's kind of my thesis statement of this entire episode, and we'll get into it more later, but the fact that they got complacent and didn't keep up with... Well, I mean, I feel like that's obvious. They didn't keep up with the times. But anyway, so the first day that Blockbuster opened its doors in 1985, the response from customers was nothing short of amazing. According to Cook, the employees had to lock the doors to stop customers from mobbing the store. Customers were delighted with the vast selection of movies available to rent. This was due to a $6 million distribution center that David Cook created to allow new stores to be started quickly and to allow each store to cater to its neighborhood demographics. So basically, this is like an early version of the the algorithms that we see in YouTube, Netflix, basically that curated content that, that goes to an individual level, except, you know, obviously it's at a more uh, regional level because, you know, wherever the stores were. So is it fair to assume that David Cook was a massive nerd? Yes. Because it kind of sounds like he might be a nerd. Yeah. If So, so there's... Okay. I'm going to get into this more later. You cannot find a whole lot of stuff about David Cook. The fact that I know anything about this guy is kind of amazing. But the interviews that he has, he's just like, put a pin in that. We're going to we're going to come back to it. That I, was I, a nice backwards brag about your researching skills. Yeah, but you yeah. know what? OK, we'll put a pin in it. I'm great. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll get back to how nerdy this guy is. OK. Anyway, despite having created the infrastructure that led Blockbuster to a success, David Cook eventually gave up control of the company to one of his investors which uh, came and I think you're going to be talking about more later, in exchange for $20 million. This was probably a bad move because, as we'll come to find out, Blockbuster is soon to be valued in the billions. So a $20 million buyout, eh, probably not that, not, not that lucrative. But you shouldn't feel bad for the guy because Cook continued to pioneer new industries, moving to be on the board of at least two more companies after Blockbuster. 
David Cook was a forward thinker who was able to see the potential for new technology in a growing market. Shortly after leaving Blockbuster, Cook tried to convince record companies to let him upload their songs to the internet for downloadable sales, but nobody really took him up on it. This was in 1998. Who would ever do that? Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> what a stupid idea. Yeah, he goes around trying to convince people that this is the next thing, and they're like, nah. So this is in 1998, three years before the release of iTunes. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, now here's the kicker for me, talking about this whole, like, hard to research this guy. David Cook doesn't have a Wikipedia page. What? If you if you go to Wikipedia and search for David Cook, you get some ass clown from American Idol. <laughs> it's horrible. Like, this dude started block. Like, do you know how low the bar is to get a Wikipedia page? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's extremely low. Yeah, dude does not have a Wikipedia page. There's like one interview with him and the whole time he's like, yeah, you know, I started Blockbuster. It's not a big deal. I don't really talk about it. And then they're like, are you upset that you sold the company for 20 million? And he's like, nah, I think everybody, including me, thinks that that other guy did a better job. So like, <laughs> nah. he did. He did. He did an amazing job. But we'll get into that. Yeah. I kind of get why nobody took him up on his ideas. Because <laughs> I don't know that I would. He's just like, man. He's just a wet mop. <laughs> like, okay. I want to sell you songs on the internet. The Eeyore of technology. We need to write him a Wikipedia page. Nickname, the Eeyore of technology. <laughs> there like, we go. Maybe we can maybe we can get on that after this episode. If anyone wants to uh, take up the mantle and do that job for us, just shoot us an email. Colin. Colin, can we get a Wikipedia page on David Cook? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll make it right now, I'm sure. I'm sure that that won't get immediately removed from the mods. <laughs> Excellent. Um So, are we ready to go on to uh Wayne? Yeah, I love how both of us are avoiding saying his last name. Okay. I I completely skipped over it. I was like I'm not even going to try it. How do you say it? The the the, the way that I understand how to pronounce it, Wayne Huai Zinga. Huai Zinga. You're full of shit. So like Hawaii, like the, the, the company. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Huai Zinga. Yeah, Huai Zinga. So <laughs> rather than uh, dishing on this guy's last name, let's get into his story. So uh, Wayne Huai Zinga was born in Evergreen Park, Illinois on December 29th, 1937. Uh, the first child in a family of garbage haulers. Wayne's grandfather was Dutch immigrant who started Huizinga and Sons Scavenger Co. in Chicago in 1894. And his uh, family had actually built up a little money from that. Was upper middle class doing all right. Isn't this just the plot of Sanford and Sons? Perhaps. <laughs> so um, Huizinga grows up um, in the early 1953. His family actually moved from Chicago down to Florida, settled in the Fort Lauderdale area. Long story short, uh, he goes down to Fort Lauderdale and starts Southern Sanitation Service by borrowing $5,000 from his father and sweet-talking with a rival trash hauler about selling him used trucks. Apparently, he just went up to this dude and, like, kind of begged him. <laughs> and the dude was like, all right, I'll give you the trucks and I'll finance you. I assume there was some sort of system to pay him back. And then by 1968, Hazinga had built the one-truck fleet that he had into about 40 trucks. He had expanded all across Florida, down into Key West. And then a distant relative, who was actually running the company that his grandfather uh, founded, uh, the Hazinga and Son Scavenger Company in Chicago, uh, reaches out and suggests a merger with Southern Sanitation. Um, this merger created a little-known company called Waste Management, which would go on to become the largest waste disposal company in the U.S. And then Wayne retired from that at 46 years old. Of course, he would need more things to do after he retired. So he um, met uh, Dave Cook. He uh, bought that out, like you said, for $20 million. He acquired several stores in 1987. Uh, and then he brought over one of his uh, business contacts from Waste Management named John Melk. John Melk and he uh, used their old business techniques and combined them with Ray Kroc's McDonald's model. You know, the guy who made McDonald's explode. Uh, to expand Blockbuster. We're not in the food business. <laughs> We're in the real estate business. Pretty much. They they uh, bought up a lot of things, made Blockbuster grow incredibly rapidly. Uh, 
and they were also buying up competitions and other businesses. Um, so whenever they would get enough money, uh, they would immediately take that money and buy uh, near and spread kind of like a wildfire across the United States. Actually, I have a list of some of the companies that they bought here. So they bought Errol's, uh, which was a rival with 250 stores. And this is all in the early 1990s. They bought Sound Warehouse and Music Plus, which is 236 music stores. Uh, they, of course, then took that music and uh, added a music section into Blockbuster and then kept all those stores to create more Blockbusters. Uh, they took a controlling interest in Spelling Group, uh, which was actually a production company that made TV shows like The Love Boat, uh, Beverly Hills 90210, Seventh Heaven, and Charmed. Then they bought the Super Club Retail Entertainment Corp, which is a subsidiary of Philips Electronics with 270 music stores and 160 video retailers. So between 1987, he took this $7 million business, or started that year at $7 million, and 19 stores and made a $4 billion company that's uh, global in 11 countries with 3,700 stores at its peak in 1994. It's at this point that uh, he is winding down. Um, of course, he did a lot after Blockbuster, and this is actually, I kind of want to go into Hazinga because he's pretty impressive. So after his Blockbuster career, he went on to own AutoNation. He founded a team called the Florida Marlins. He founded a team called the Florida Panthers, and uh, he would buy the Miami Dolphins. Now, I've decided I actually want to do a little game with this. Hey, Colin, producer Colin. Yeah. Um, can you tell me what sport? Oh no! Uh, what what sports league the Florida Marlins belongs to? Baseball, MLB. Oh, that's pretty good. Yes, Florida Marlins is an MLB team. Yeah, Miami Dolphins. That's football, NFL, NFL team. Two for three, and the Florida Panthers. Uh, uh hockey, NHL. Yeah, NHL. So this man, this man started two professional sports leagues. Team. Very good, Colin. Very good. Um, and then of course owned a third. In in my research, there was a great quote that I read. Uh, this said, "Is there a single team in Florida that Wayne who is who hasn't owned?" <laughs> Wayne, yeah, no, I, I saw that quote as well. Uh, yeah, no, he he owned it all, and um, then he he oh yeah, he also uh, Auto Nation. By the way, so you have Blockbuster. You have Waste Management and AutoNation, which makes Wayne Huizenga the only entrepreneur ever to launch three Fortune 500 companies. So, uh, pretty impressive. But can you really say that he launched Blockbuster? Like, yeah, he was an early investor who ended up taking it over, but... He was... He took it to Fortune 500, which I feel like is a saying. Okay, alright. That's fair. Yeah, I'll give you that. I gotta defend my boy David Cook because he sure ain't gonna defend himself. <laughs> wet mop. Absolute wet mop. So, um, Zynga, realizing that Blockbuster was soon to be operating with data technology, decided to sell the company in 1994. Huizinga ended up selling the company to Viacom for $8.4 billion in 1994, as was previously mentioned by Cayman. <laughs> and you know what? This is where I'm gonna say the downfall starts really that's where you're gonna mark it at viacom i'm marking it at 1994 i think the sale to viacom is where this whole thing messed up because between uh david cook and wayne huizinga you had two prominent leaders who knew what they were doing at the very least they had a vision for what the store was going to be with david cook it was let's be the best technologically and with Wayne Huizinga, what it was just um, let's get as much out there. Like let's open five in every block. Um, but with Viacom, you introduce a new hierarchy of power that you kind of have to start dancing around to um, to make it work. And on top of that, Viacom was a media company, and video rental and media companies didn't always get along. So you had these conflicts of interest where block something made complete sense for Blockbuster, but Viacom being a media giant was like, yeah, but you're not thinking about all these other things that we have going on. 
So, for instance, uh, just three years after Viacom's purchase, the CEO of Blockbuster, Bill Fields, stepped down from his position after a disagreement with Viacom CEO Sumner Redstone over the direction of the company. Fields dreamed of turning Blockbuster into a centralized library for all forms of media, but that idea butted up against Viacom's desire to focus on core competencies in an attempt to reduce debt. So Viacom was like, just stick with what you're doing, do it well, pay us back some money, because they had borrowed a lot of money from their parent company, Viacom, and they were like, we need some of that money back. Like, you can't keep doing these weird things out there. So essentially Viacom saying, like, don't innovate. Don't do that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> which will will not come back to bite them in the ass later. It's fine. Yeah, which which is the story of every great company, right? And so with that, Fields steps down from his position as Blockbuster CEO, and within a couple days, the market value of Viacom had fallen by $1.6 billion. So yeah, Fields steps down, company falls by $1.6 billion, which has got to be a great feeling. Like Pocket change. I've quit jobs before and it feels great, but I wish I could like look in the news and be like, you left and now that company's worth le- $1.6 billion less now. <laughs> Anyway, but speaking of valuation, to make things worse, at this time, Blockbuster was estimated by Viacom. This is actually a highball. I read a lot of things that are lower, but Viacom themselves said the company was worth anywhere from six to eight billion dollars, which, yeah, when they paid eight point four billion three years ago, you would expect, you know, that it's not good for them. That's a loss. That's a little bit of yeah. money. Yeah. It's 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 a quite a bit of money and three years of inflation, three years of you would hope company growth um, and all the debt that they've borrowed from Viacom. Anyway, this led Viacom to take the company public in August of 1999, raising a total of four hundred sixty five million dollars to pay back some of the debt that they owed. Probably some of that debt came from uh, the legal troubles that they were seeing. Uh, it's hard to talk about media distribution in the 1980s without talking about Nintendo. What? Yeah. What is a what is a Nintendo? Uh, a Nintendo <laughs> is a unit of measurement for fun. <laughs> okay. It must be it must be one of those like European metric system things. I don't I don't, mm-hmm. I don't keep up with that. Video games were becoming big business, and this was no secret to Blockbuster. As video game rentals started to take off, Nintendo made it known that they did not approve. Howard Lincoln, the chairman of Nintendo of America, called video game rental nothing less than commercial rape. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Th- those things are comparable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> video game rental and rape. Well, so what you have to understand is, I didn't know this, video game rental is illegal in Japan. Every Japanese game has not available for rent, like printed prominently on the box. Um, So Nintendo wasn't used to having to fight this battle. Like they saw it as something just intrinsic to the market. Yeah. And their argument was, and it makes sense, right? Like movie studios release in theaters and that's the time that they make back the money. You can't rent a movie when it first comes out. There's a grace period. Um But for software, you know, they come out with the game and immediately it hits store shelves. And this is back in the day when, like, games were much more, you know, simplified. So you could beat a game in a couple days or, you know. Oh, yeah, no, I'm getting the point now. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Yeah. So if you rent a game and you beat it, you're like, okay, I got the whole experience for three dollars rather than paying 60 for the game itself. So Nintendo tried everything that it could to stop Blockbuster from renting their games, but they 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 couldn't file any kind of injunction to to get them to stop. There was no legal grounds for it, but they finally found a way to kind of jab at them. You see, video games generally come with an instruction manual that explain things about the game. These have kind of fallen out of favor in recent years because everything's digital now. But in the 1980s, video games were a lot more cryptic. And there were times when these manuals held crucial information that you absolutely needed to understand how to play the game. So because of this, Blockbuster provided a copy of the manual with every game rental. The problem was these are rentals, so the manuals would often come back frayed or just not come back at all. You know, covered Mm -hmm. in 
juices. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you when you get uh, Metroid and you see uh, Zero Suit Samus for the first time, you a lot of a lot of a lot of awakenings happening there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't give me that look. Don't you give me that look. Anyway, thanks, Cayman. Uh, <laughs> more than I needed to know. <laughs> Not me. So anyway, um, the the manuals came back busted. So Blockbuster started photocopying them. You know, like they would keep the the original. They would photocopy the manual and they would provide it with the rental. Nintendo obviously saw this as a violation of their copyright and issued Blockbuster a cease and desist. Blockbuster complied by not photocopying the Nintendo manuals, but they literally started producing their own manuals for these video games, <laughs> which has got to be a great job. Like you just they, they come to you and you're like, hey, Mark, um, we're going to need you to play video games and write write manuals for them. Oh, like just that's going to be your job. You're going to pay me just to sit here and play the video games. And pretty much I can like I have the manual, but you guys don't want that one. You want me to no. make it? Mm -mm. Oh, oh, Nintendo said no. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> wouldn't they just rewrite the manual based on the original manual, though? Uh, I mean, probably that sounds easiest. And you just kind of move some words around. Colin, you're ruining this for me. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I like to imagine that there's a guy out there that just gets paid to play video games. There's a guy named Mark. We've we've established. His name is Mark. I've named him. <laughs> I don't think he's there. Can I keep him, Dad? Anyway. So, the case was ultimately settled out of court for an undisclosed amount, and Blockbuster continued renting games for the rest of their operation. Basically, Nintendo had no legal grounds, but tried everything they could to uh, to try. You, you, you can't fault them for trying right <laughs> well and it makes sense when you explain when you explain how the video game works compared to the movies that that makes sense well speaking of large corporations that start with the letter n um another company came around 1997 you may have heard of uh called netflix it was founded in scotts valley california by mark randolph and reed hastings now i'm not going to get too too much into netflix's history we all know netflix uh if you don't have a netflix account then you're probably like still in your brother-in-law's account or something like that um so uh just a few fast facts about them uh, netflix was launched on april 14th 1999 as the world's first online dvd rental store with only 30 employees and 925 titles available which was almost the entire catalog of DVDs in print at that time. Uh, Netflix's initial business model included DVD sales and rental by mail, but Hastings abandoned the sales after a year. Uh, the company's founding to focus or started to focus more on the initial DVD rental business. Um, they also originally had a pay per rent model like Blockbuster, uh, but they had a subscription model in September of 99, dropping the pay per rent. Uh, in early 2000. So that's Netflix. Have you seen their uh, their like original website? No, I haven't. Oh, it's so good. Is it? Uh, just just Google uh, just Google original Netflix site, and it's the first result on Google Images. Like it's so 90s. Like even their logo, it's like a film reel in like a swirl. Oh. Oh, it's all like Times New Roman. It's <laughs> look at the colors. It's like purple and then like just vomit. Oh, yeah, it's bad. They weren't always the uh, technological giant they are today. We'll slap that up on our social media or something so y'all can go check it out later. But whew, that is rough. And I'm I'm happy that they made the switch from the purple to the red. So um, <laughs> early 2000s, Netflix wasn't doing good. Uh, some say that was, you know, because, uh, keeping all these titles, keeping the rights, getting them out, making sure that you're, uh, getting overhead, like paid off. Um, some say it's because of their terrible looking website. They get this great idea. Netflix is going to go to Blockbuster and offer to, um, sell their website, their subscription service. Uh, so they go and they actually get a meeting with the CEO uh, Antioco at this time, John Antioco, who, uh, sucks, not a great guy, uh, terrible. And this is actually, I mark the, the downfall of Blockbuster, not by Viacom's purchase, Michael. I mark the downfall of Blockbuster by when, when John Antioco became CEO. He's awful. I feel like, I feel like that's pretty similar though, right? Like, yeah, yeah, but it's not Viacom that killed him. It was, it was Antioco. 
The thing is, Bill Field stepped down because he didn't agree with the way that Viacom was running the company, and they appointed Antioco. I mean, I think they go hand in hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, mine's more correct, but I guess yours is technically correct as well. Hey, technically correct is the best <laughs> kind of correct. <laughs> okay. So, uh, Reed Hastings met with Blockbuster executives in 2000 with the hope that the video rental chain would purchase their company for $50 million. Uh, what they were going to do is they were going to, or they were offering to run the online portion of Blockbuster. They would become Blockbuster Online, and Blockbuster would just continue doing what it's doing. So uh, literally $50 million and you have that entire business to yourself. And I have a uh, quote here. Through Reed's pitch and Barry's windup, I had been watching Antioca, recalls Randolph. I had seen him use all the tricks that I'd also learned over the years. Lean in, make eye contact, nod slowly when the speaker turns in your direction, frame questions in a way that makes it clear that you're listening. But now that Reed had named a number, I saw something new. I saw something I didn't recognize. His earnest expression, slightly unbalanced by a turning up at the corner of his mouth. It was tiny, involuntary, and vanished almost immediately. But as soon as I saw it, I knew it was happening. John Antioco was struggling not to laugh. So Antioco saw this as a victory. He saw uh, this little company, company, Netflix, coming to them saying oh, our business model isn't working. Uh, maybe you could buy us, and then with your support, we could succeed. Uh, he just laughed. He thought that it was funny. Um, so uh, he obviously decides not to buy um, Netflix, which kind of uh, gives Netflix uh, reinvigorated. It's kind of a, a sink or swim at that point. Uh, and then, of course, as you know, Netflix goes on to do pretty well. Uh, Antioco at that time could have bought Netflix for one 260th of what it was worth um, at the end of Blockbuster. At that point in time, the three-year-old company was only milling DVDs, but knew the internet would eventually be the way forward. So as of 2008, they were renting over half a billion movies a year. In January 2007, Netflix added the option for its subscribers to stream movies directly from the internet. Although it only had about a thousand movies at the time, it quickly began to add new selections. Unfortunately, that model failed. Netflix went out of business. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, Netflix would go on to rapidly become the media powerhouse we all know and love today. Even even still, the, the mail-order DVD, and I'll get into why they didn't do that a little bit more later. Didn't do what? That they didn't do the mail-order DVDs. Oh, Netflix. Or, I'm sorry, Blockbuster. Because that's what all Netflix was at that point in time was the mail-order DVDs. So they were saying, we have this. It's working but we're not meeting our cost with your infrastructure blockbuster we could do this um and then uh i think honestly antioco just wanted to feel like a big man and he wanted to know that he'd beat someone he acts like a child from everything that i've seen i can't really speak to that because i i haven't done a ton of research but i mean honestly like i feel like this is commonly referred to as like the moment that blockbuster screwed up but I don't think so, honestly. Like, obviously, with the hindsight that we have, it makes sense that you would buy Netflix. Netflix is going to grow to dominate the market. But, I mean, you know, the butter butterfly effect is weird, right? If you go back and they buy Netflix, Netflix might just crumble. I mean, obviously, it won't exist anymore. It'll just be Blockbuster, whatever. But there's no tell. There could be another person that comes along and figures the whole thing out even better because it seems like Blockbuster just can't innovate. I just feel like... You know, from Blockbuster's perspective, you have this tiny company coming and saying, can you please give us a ton of money so that we can be absorbed into you? Yeah. There's no reason. Like, what did they bring to the table that Blockbuster couldn't do a hundred million times better with their resources? Obviously, they didn't, but they could have. Uh, and they tried. And, and I'll get into that some. Uh, you briefly mentioned that Netflix started in-home streaming in 2008. Yeah. Um. Blockbuster actually could do it in 1999, nine years prior. Oh, wow. Now, um, why, why didn't that get uh, popular there, there, Michael? Well, it's because uh, in order to do that, they did have to make a deal with the devil. Oh. A little company called Enron came to Blockbuster in 1999. That's a trustworthy sounding name. That is a trustworthy sounding company right there. If you aren't familiar with Enron... Don't worry, it's definitely going to be an episode in the future. The brief history is Enron made a lot of promises it couldn't keep, 
And then a lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> but at this time, nobody knew that yet. So Enron was a well-respected company with a division called Enron Broadband Services. Uh, Enron wanted to partner with Blockbuster to provide video on-demand services through the internet. Again, in 1999. To make things even better, Enron wanted to do all the work of setting up the network and figuring out the logistics. All they wanted from Blockbuster was that sweet, sweet name recognition in exchange for a share of the revenue. Not the profit, the revenue. Despite the early concept of home streaming, Enron had built one hell of a smooth network that was testing positively with consumers. The service looked very similar to the movies on YouTube today. You could search for the movie of your choice, and then for a price, you could stream the movie to your TV for 24 hours using a set-top box like many cable companies have today. The issue was that many movie studios were apprehensive about streaming copies of their content directly to people's homes. Enron expected Blockbuster to come through in persuading studios to agree to the new distribution method, seeing as they already had a close relationship with many of these companies, one of which being Viacom. Yeah. Yeah. Instead, Blockbuster executives cited the lack of content as their reason for pulling out of the deal in 2001. So basically, instead of trying to continue the business deal, they said, there's no content here. And Enron's like, yeah, that's your job. And they're like, this is a dumb deal. I'm out. It's so ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's crazy how, like, mismanaged this company is. Hey, Blockbuster, can you provide the uh, content for us? Yeah, and that's all they had to do. Like, literally, Enron was doing all the heavy lifting. All that they had to do, and again, I, I downplay the idea of trying to go to movie studios to get their content, but, like, I feel like as Blockbuster, you can be like, hey, there's a new revenue stream for you. Like, See, that's the thing, when it comes back to the the stupid 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 netflix decision at first when i was reading through all this i was thinking oh well they didn't want to go with the netflix option because they have their own option uh with enron like they have another project that they're working on but no they didn't care about that at all obviously like they kind of gave them permission then when it didn't work out they were like bad they, they they absolutely contributed nothing and and like you can look up video uh, oh the videos are fantastic because like they start with explaining how like broadband internet work or just really how internet works because it's 1999 like it's a very foreign concept to many people so it's like there's servers somewhere outside of your home that actually <laughs> hold the movie and then it like has like a dvd box case going through like a tube and it's like <laughs> the movie is delivered to your home using something called broadband <laughs> using fiber like it's, it's fantastic look it up but anyway the point is but they also show off the service and it's not like this is some like 1999 half-baked solution it's it's real like the streaming is obviously like 480p or something but right it's the movie i mean hell you get the movie on vhs it's better than vhs i can tell you that yeah i mean a lot of people were still using vhs in 1999 but yeah you could also make the argument that like Blockbuster made the right choice because Enron, you know, everything that we know about Enron now. But I disagree because when they went belly up, I feel like that's a great opportunity. If if this thing was going well and making money, yeah. Enron goes belly up, Blockbuster said they start liquidating everything. Blockbuster says, "Let us buy you out of your half of this or let's just carve out this section of the business. We'll take all these employees that know the 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 broadband stuff." Should I get into uh, total access now? Sure. Okay. So, Blockbuster Total Access. Their second attempt to uh, <laughs> to create a new revenue stream. Oh, God. Blockbuster uh, purchased a small startup doing mail-order movie rentals in the early 2000s. Now, this is right around that time that they could have just bought Netflix. But no, they're going to do it on their own. They're going to be big boys. So, they set up a new team in Dallas with a $25 million budget to build a Blockbuster Netflix. Like, that's what they said. Now, is this is this around the time that they moved the Blockbuster headquarters to Dallas? Yes, yes. Or I think they did that maybe a couple years before. Okay. Anyway, so they're in Dallas now. Uh, they set up their small startup, $25 million to build Blockbuster their own Netflix. Because why buy something when you can build it yourself? Uh, they're given free range to do whatever they want, except use Blockbuster stores for pickups. Now, Netflix wasn't doing this, so it wasn't a big deal. But that's like that's like the value proposition, right? Like, right. we have all these stores. What can we do differently than them? You can do the pickup there. Exactly. How can we make something better than... We don't want another Netflix. We want something that's better than Netflix. 
Now, uh, Colin, you might be asking why they didn't want to use the Blockbuster store for pickups. Yeah, I am asking that right now. Well, it's because many Blockbuster stores were franchised and store owners didn't want to eat up the profits. Ooh, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yep. So uh, essentially they were thinking about doing that. Um, and then they immediately realized the kind of backlash that they would have from their store owners because the store owners aren't going to get any profit from it. But I don't see why they couldn't have done some kind of profit sharing thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Like there's got to be a system out there. Like somebody could have come up with like something. Like if it's coming to your store, then you get a, a certain percentage of that. Uh, yeah, a small fee for, for yeah, whatever. But, you know, this is also the same time, uh, you know, Netflix hadn't really even figured it out at this point. Uh, Netflix was, you know, pandering for more money around this time because they they were sinking. Uh, so if it's difficult for a company like them, I, I get that Blockbuster doesn't want to lose any of that percentage that it's going to get uh, shipping the DVDs to those stores. Now, Blockbuster Online does surprisingly well in 2004. It really starts to catch on. Um, and actually, half of all new entrants into the online rental market uh, we're going to Blockbuster. Now, of course, uh, Netflix did have its loyal customers from before, but that wasn't really much. So even, I, I mean, they're pushing the same thing, but Blockbuster's getting about uh, half the business there. When Blockbuster entered the DVD rental market, because they had kind of kept this thing under hush, Netflix CEO Reed Hastings uh, told one of his analysts in an earnings call, and this is a fun fact, uh, in the last six months, Blockbuster has thrown everything but the kitchen sink at us. The next day, uh, Hastings received a package from Blockbuster. Inside was a kitchen sink. <laughs> Boomer humor. <laughs> and that was definitely Antioco. That's what I'm saying. This guy is childish. It had to. It was when Antioco was there. It had to be Antioco. That's like a. That's like a Riddler move. <laughs> <laughs> it's just. It's so petty. It's so petty. But uh, but funny. Good good amount of drama there. Uh, pause. This is a good joke. Oh, it must be because, you know, Blockbuster owns the spelling group and they get all that experience with uh, Beverly Hills 90210 and Charmed and all that and do their little dramas. Actually, that was a bad joke. That joke sucked. Yeah, we'll, we'll that cut that. joke sucked so we'll, fucking we'll bad. Cut, cut, that. cut that out. We'll cut that. <laughs> <laughs> so, by 2007, uh, Blockbuster was actually starting to fall behind. They realized that they were falling behind and they realized that they needed to do something different because Netflix was overtaking them again. They roll out a billion dollar campaign called Total Access. Now, this merged a subscription-based model with the storefront model. It allowed people to return movies to storefronts and exchange them for free for other movies. Uh, it worked perfectly without a hitch, and Blockbuster is still the largest me movie retailer to this day. This 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 joke keeps getting funnier every time you tell it. I had already told this joke before. Um, a couple times. <laughs> so it allowed people to return movies to storefronts and exchange them for free. Uh, it cost Blockbuster $2 every time someone did this, as they had to pay back the store owner. So it's basically what we were saying earlier, right? They were trying to do some kind of profit sharing thing, but rather than doing a percentage, they're doing a flat fee, which means how much do you know how much it costs a month? So, uh, so the original subscription, I believe, was $10 a month. So if you get five movies a month, Blockbuster's losing money. Yeah. So uh, they hope that the rise in the subscriptions would offset this cost. Um because I guess they're they're hoping the same thing. You know, Blockbuster always made its money off late fees. Like, that's where they got the the their bread and butter was. So I guess they were hoping that people would pay for the subscription and not use it that much, or at least not go to the stores. They were hoping that the rise in subscriptions that they would get. You know what it sounds like? What? Is uh, Movie Pass, which is probably another great episode idea. Yeah, no, that's that's going to be another episode, I'm sure, at some point. But it sounds just like Movie Pass, right? They're like, well, no, a bunch of people are going to sign up, and then we're going to make money. And <laughs> yeah. it's like, no, it's just everybody's taking you to the cleaners because you're charging <laughs> way too little for what you're doing, and you don't have the backing of the people who are actually providing the service. Now, I'm pretty sure, Colin, could you give us a confirmation uh, on that original subscription price? I am fairly certain I read it was $10, which is, I mean, you gotta think. That seems really low. It does seem low. Yeah, I'll try to find it. Um, So, uh, regardless, this terrified Netflix, because essentially Netflix saw this as, you know, blockbuster 
everyone could tell that they weren't making money on this they saw it as blockbuster like stabbing themselves on the stomach to like bleed out netflix like just absolutely they would run themselves in the debt to make sure that netflix couldn't keep up yeah so basically just like fighting a business war of attrition yeah like yeah we will we will <laughs> yeah and i mean when you looked at it at the time it made sense because you know blockbuster at least had the reputation of being able to take a bigger hit than netflix or it probably still definitely could even though they were starting to fall starting to fall back but actually this is uh they get another opportunity here Hastings actually met with Antioco and offered a truce where Blockbuster would sell its online arm to Netflix and they would work together. So it would kind of be like somewhat of a merger and you would be able to take your Netflix DVDs to Blockbuster and trade them out for Blockbuster movies and they would like kind of integrate that way and like order Netflix DVDs at Blockbuster's. That seems weird. It does seem weird. And uh, uh, from a logistics standpoint, like, I guess their entire inventory would be shared at that point. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess that seems like a bad, I'm, I'm, I'm with Blockbuster on this one. That seems like a bad deal. I'm sure if you looked at the volume of DVDs that Blockbuster had versus what Netflix had, I'd say you could probably value it in the millions just for the physical media itself. So to, to share that seems like a, a lopsided deal on Netflix's part. Yeah, you're right. But you see, the, the deal actually almost went through because, I mean, they're still losing money on this and you wouldn't have to... Um... I guess it removes a competitor from the market. I mean, that's really the value of it. Well, you're, you stop competing with yourself. Because they were just going to put it in there with the franchisers. Yeah. And they weren't going to have to pay the franchisers back so much because those people were doing Netflix. They weren't doing Blockbuster. Um, which is, I don't I don't really understand how this completely would have worked. Um, but the deal was about to go through and Antioco is sacked. Uh, he loses his job, which should have happened a long time ago. At this point, Blockbuster hires a new CEO, Jim Keyes, uh, formerly of 7-Eleven. He decides to roll back the total access plans because uh, he realizes that they're just bleeding money. Uh, so you can no longer exchange the stores for free. Um, after they lost a half million subscribers in the third quarter uh, of that year, Blockbuster announces it will no longer report its subscriber count. So obviously they're losing to Netflix now. And uh, their online presence uh, really just grinds to a halt right there. Okay, real quick. Um, I did find a Reuters article talking about the Blockbuster subscription uh, that would rise. This was in 2007, that it will rise $2 to $10 a month. So that means at least pre-2007, it was 8 It was 8 bucks. Oh, so it was originally even lower. Jeez. Yeah, for their, like, bottom-of-the-level plan. Yeah. Yeah, that's rough. That's rough. Well, when you consider that, like, a rental was at least $3... Well, then you're also going to get your late fees. Like you're still going to have the late fees. No, how would you? If it's a subscription service, you would you're eliminating late fees, which I will get into. No, well, I mean, this is still mail order. Total Access is mail order DVDs. Yeah, but you can't have a late fee on a mail order. Yeah, you can because you haven't mailed it back. You haven't taken it to drop it off. No. The way that I mean if it worked the same way that Netflix worked, it was there are no like that was a huge part of their marketing is no late fees because you keep the movie as long as you want, but you don't get another one until you ship it back. That's how Netflix worked, at least. Oh, that's a subscription service. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. There were no late fees. You didn't have to return it. I mean, you did eventually. Or or you could just keep paying for the subscription. <laughs> but <laughs> I've paid $200 for my copy of Jurassic Park 3. <laughs> for this copy of Lethal Weapon 4. All right. Well, yeah, I guess uh, talking about late fees, good transition into uh, I this is honestly like this is a, a close second for the stupidest thing that Blockbuster ever did. Yeah. So in addition to attempting to break into new service models, Blockbuster tried to revamp the traditional rental service to compete with the new subscription model. Netflix's advertising really drove home the point of no late fees ever due perhaps in part to the founder's inspiration to start the company being a late fee he received from Blockbuster in 1997. Cayman, what was that movie? Oh, this was in my notes. This was in my notes. Oh, God. Pass. Pass. I, I do not remember. Colin, would you like to hazard a guess? Uh, Fight Club. It was Apollo 13. Oh, yes! Oh, that's... Oh, 
Oh, yes. Okay. Yep. That was in my notes at one point. I I cannot find it now, but yes. Okay. So anyway, that's beside the point. He got a late fee, decided to start Netflix. That's probably number one worst decision they ever made was they should have just given him the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that one guy. Hey, you live and you learn, right? Right. Netflix's advertising was really resonating with people as many had felt the monetary pain of being on the wrong end of a due date. In order to try and win back some of those customers, Blockbuster decided to completely eliminate late fees in 2004. And while this may have built some goodwill with consumers, late fees were a core component to the ecosystem that Blockbuster had created. You see, there's a lot of overhead associated with renting a movie to a customer. Obviously, you have to have bought the DVD, then you need to pay staff to stock, shelve, and process the rental. You have to pay for the building that the DVD sits in. You have server costs associated with maintaining your inventory and rentals. And at the end of the day, you have to take all of that out of your revenue. But late fees, there's no cost to you when someone else messes up. For Blockbuster to break even on eliminating late fees, they would have to find enough profit to make back the $300 million a year that they were making from late fees. Ooh. And that's in profit. Ooh. Keep in mind, you've got to take out all of your costs. This is pure profit. What year was it that they got rid of late fees? 2004. 2004. So that would have been when Antioco was there. Antioco, you sack of shit. Customers could now keep their rentals for up to two weeks before Blockbuster charged them for the full price of the movie or game. And on top of that, you could still return it within 30 days to get a full credit back to your account. This meant that smash hit movies, dare I say blockbusters, would fly off the shelves when they first hit stores, but then they would be gone for weeks at a time. This led to customers either waiting, renting from a competitor, or just buying the movie outright. While this was a good idea in theory, just because late fees were unpopular doesn't mean that eliminating them will be better for consumers. It's like speeding tickets. I absolutely hate them when they happen to me, but I understand that they are necessary to maintaining some semblance of order on the road. That's, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah, okay, so late fees are good. What's the moral here? What's the moral there again? The moral is, I mean, you can't just eliminate the, like, it's, it's, it's like Honda. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Honda doesn't make a lot of money on their cars. Right. They make money from the service on their cars. Actually, it's like most car manufacturers. Oh. You don't make a ton of money on the car. You take a low profit margin on the car. You make money on the service. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. Do you, you can't be mad at car companies for charging a lot of money for the service. They have to make money somehow. And you can't be mad at Blockbuster for charging a late fee. They've got to make the money somehow. They don't really make it from the rental. They make it from the late fees. That's where the profit is. And that's what drives the cost down so much that it's worth it to rent a movie. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, if if you just keep up, if you just do what you're supposed to do, if you return your copy of Apollo 13. Yeah, Reed Hastings. Reed Hastings. Is that his name? I just pulled that from yeah. the ether. I hope that's right. No, Reed Reed Hastings. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's ridiculous. I don't. I don't know what Blockbuster's logic was in thinking. How are we going to make up that 300 million dollars? It sounded good on paper. I think they were just like, yeah, let's do it. Did it? <laughs> It sounds good on paper if you, like, read the first line of the proposal. It sounds good on paper if you don't think about it. Yeah, okay, great. Even if you say, okay, well, yeah, but if they don't turn it in, you charge them a bunch of money, you're charging them for the actual piece of media. You don't get back any of that money. You've right. got to then go buy a new copy of it. You've completely eliminated your profit-making mechanism. Right. So, after all this, obviously, Blockbuster has been... Uh, leaking money left and right so much so that by march 17th 2010 they are threatened with nearly a billion dollars in debt one billion dollars in debt blockbuster at this point issues a bankruptcy warning not a bankruptcy and i'll just go down the timeline here of 2010 for you on july 1st 2010 the company was delisted from the new york stock exchange it's no longer publicly traded always a bad sign in a July 2010 interview, CEO Jim Keyes, when asked whether Blockbuster's financial troubles were due in part to Netflix's success, he said, no, I don't know where that comes from. He then denied that the company was going bankrupt. In August of 2010, cue the always sunny music, <laughs> pretty, Blockbuster goes bankrupt. Pretty much. In August of 2010, ailing from the debt of $900 million, a little bit lower than that billion, 
Blockbuster's head of digital strategy, uh, Kevin Lewis at the time, explains, we're strategically better positioned than almost anybody out there. Never in my wildest dreams would I have aimed this high. Talking about Blockbuster, on September 23rd, 2010, Blockbuster filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection. <laughs> like a month later. Like, wh who are they? Do they think that if they just like say nice things that it's not going to happen? They read the secret. <laughs> and uh, they made a dream board. <laughs> so at the time of its Chapter 11 filing, Blockbuster said it would keep its 3,300 stores open. In December, they closed 182. <laughs> Cayman, you shouldn't laugh at this. This is a tragedy. <laughs> this is a tragedy. A lot of people lost their jobs. They did. They did. A lot of investors lost a lot of money, Cayman. <laughs> they did. They Think about the investors. Oh, God. Oh, God. So April 6, 2011, uh, Dish Network announces that it was uh, winning the bidder purchase for Blockbuster. It was buying it for $320 million in the assumption of $87 million in debt. Now, Michael, could you remind me how much Viacom? $8.2 billion. <laughs> the it was $8.2 billion. <laughs> Jesus. So, <laughs> Blockbuster's not doing good. Oh my god, I didn't realize that they bought it for that cheap. That is horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. And I mean, like, that's the catalog. Like, you get all their bag DVDs and, like, everything. Honestly, they probably just bought the DVDs. That was probably what that was worth. Yeah, yeah, no, that was that was their intention. Um, well, actually, we'll get into their intention uh, here in a little bit. So... I have a quote here with its more than 1700 store locations, a highly recognizable brand and multiple methods of delivery. Blockbuster will complement our existing video offerings while presenting cross marketing and service extension opportunities for Dish Network, said Tom Cullen, executive vice president of sales, marketing and programming for Dish Network. He goes on to say. While Blockbuster's business faces significant challenges, we look forward to working with its employees to reestablish Blockbuster's brand as a leader in video entertainment. As we all know, that happened. <laughs> I have to wonder, like, what's the distribution of store ownership by Blockbuster versus a third party that's just franchising it? Because for $300 million, like, with how many stores they own, the real estate alone is probably worth somewhere near that. And now, see, they, one, don't own what they're franchising. Um, well, yeah, obviously, but they owned a lot of stores at that point, right? I mean, but still, they're, they were $900 million in debt. Nine hundred yeah, million dollars. Like, yeah. It, they, with the, with, uh, here's the thing: is like when you said that, I was like, yeah, but you've got to compare it against the value of the company. But then you said they were three hundred million. Yeah, if you're three times your value in debt, yeah, you're in trouble. Yeah. So, um, yeah, obviously, uh, Tom Cullen, uh, vice president of sales, marketing, and programming for Dish Network. Uh, was not correct. They were not re able to reestablish a brand, but I don't think that that was really their intention the whole time. Really, what they do is they establish the Blockbuster on-demand video streaming service, uh, which is originally only available to Dish users and was uh, then folded into Dish's own video demand service in 2015, which was the official like death of the Blockbuster name. So what you're saying is they spent $300 million on the name, used the name for five years and then didn't use the name anymore oh yeah no because they're they were making a netflix they were making a netflix for dish but why not just make it dish like I, they did they they eventually did I, they eventually did but what was it worth 300 million dollars to be like it's blockbuster but it's dish like so much about this story doesn't make sense to me <laughs> yeah no there had to be some sort like they i guess they had won the name recognition that sweet sweet name recognition that sweet sweet name and like i have an old roku i have a roku remote that has like you know you have your netflix button here and you have like it's like roku tv and then you have uh blockbuster is actually one of the buttons like the quick buttons on the roku remote so it was like it, it was supposed to be a netflix um and <laughs> The problem with that is, one, it was ori originally only available to Dish users. Uh, two, uh, why? Why Why would I get Blockbuster streaming when Netflix is already, like, this is 2011. Like, Netflix is getting really big. It's huge. So, uh, yeah, after they folded onto the, into their own video demand service, 
Uh, Dish begins closing stores, including all 253 stores in Canada in 2011, RIP, uh, and the last 300 remaining corporate-owned stores were shut down in 2013. Um, So I'm thinking at this point, they didn't really have a lot of corporate-owned stores. Most of it was franchise. And then, of course, when they stopped getting that support from Dish, like all these all your franchise stores are like start going under on their own because people have heard that blockbusters bankrupt they're not keeping up with netflix so you start seeing a lot of doors shut and as of march 2019 there is only one store left Uh, michael do you want to touch on that well cayman um i've got to correct you there as of february of 2020 there's only one blockbuster store oh february 2020 i was a little early there a little early with march 2019 it's still open is what i'm trying to say (laughs) As of now, you can still go. It's open in Bend, Oregon. Where all great things are. Oregon. It's the only Blockbuster still in operation. So yeah, at this point, the store has little to do with Blockbuster Corporate and basically just licenses the name for that sweet, sweet name recognition. Ooh. Since the distribution infrastructure for Blockbuster is long since abandoned, the store resorts to purchasing its movies from retailers directly. There's actually a great YouTube video where they talk to the lady who operates the store and she goes into a big box retailer that they don't identify because she's like, yeah, I'm not technically <laughs> supposed to do this, but people know me, so they let me. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just breaking the law. Well, I don't think it's breaking the law. I think it's just company policy. Or what company? Well, they don't say. It's like the retailer's policy. Oh, the retailer's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think they're like, don't sell to like... <laughs> I thought you were saying like Blockbuster's policy. I was like, oh no, wouldn't want to upset oh, yeah. ourselves. <laughs> Dish Network <laughs> shows up and they're like, hey, we, we spent $300 million on this and we're trying to recoup our loss. <laughs> we thought we could buy an $8 billion company for $300 million. It was a bargain. Um... Anyway, so those that frequent the store claim that they prefer the experience of selecting a film by walking through the aisles instead of being influenced by an algorithm. The staff of the store pride themselves on being knowledgeable in films and are quick to give recommendations. It's a true return to core competencies, and while consumer trends have obviously seen a drastic shift towards digital instant streaming, I think there's room in the market for a more human experience when it comes to film curation. Will we ever see the resurgence of Blockbuster? Cayman, what do you think? No, no, no. Uh, there's, uh, it's dead. Um, it, they couldn't keep up with the times. Now they're gone. It, it's not surprising, honestly, with all the stupid decisions that they made. I think that, you know, hopefully Netflix sticks around for a long time, but it, this is just something that happens when new technology comes out. The companies that aren't will- willing to adapt, they get left behind. Um, and that's exactly what happened to Blockbuster. Uh, they fought the change, and now you got Bend, Oregon, keeping the dream alive. But Bend, Oregon is obviously it's something that's just being kept alive by by the locals there. How how long are you going to be able to pull that nostalgia off? Although I would like to go. Okay, so that's my thing. I honestly disagree with you. I think Blockbuster within five to ten years is going to come back in some capacity. Like, it's like the resurgence of vinyl that happened a couple years ago. I think you're going to see people be like, hey, we missed this experience that everybody used to have. It'll be a niche thing. Like, it, there'll be, like, maybe one in every major city. But now, I think there's still name recognition with Blockbuster. I mean, hell, Captain Marvel came out last year. Where did Captain Marvel crash in the 90s? A Blockbuster. People have nostalgia for this thing. It's, it's recognizable. And there's no dollar value that you can put on name recognition except 300 million dollars i'm i'm gonna say branding if they come back branding shirts hoodies just pulling off the nostalgia it won't be stores it won't be brick and mortar Mm, but here's my local town has a video store i don't need a blockbuster to get that like that experience or whatever i can go to a video store and pick out movies just because there's a big like ticket that says blockbuster on the door that's not changing my experience really hey there uh this is colin from the future uh i was told by the guys that i need to do a quick note here i googled it and it turns out that that video store is no longer in business it is actually just a tanning salon so uh yeah never mind but uh here's the rest of this little conversation anyway on that point, Colin, I could see these smaller stores just maybe adopting the brand, right? Yeah, I mean, it, can they? Like, do they have to license it from Dish? Why not? Bend Oregon's doing it. Well, but they that was an original franchisee, right? Yeah, it's been there since like the 90s. So they had the rights, at least at some point. I mean, could you try to license it? Well, maybe. 
Well, honestly, I would say if you went to Dish Network and said, I want to open a Blockbuster, they would probably say you can do that for about $3. Now, here's my question, Colin. You said that you have a video rental store in your hometown. Do they sell adult movies? I don't know. Yes. They do? You know the one I'm talking about? I do. See, that's how they're staying in business, whereas Blockbuster can't sell adult movies. Wait, Blockbuster never did never did adult videos? Blockbuster did not sell porn. Are you sure? Uh, Colin, I need Colin... a fact check on that. Colin, can we I... get a fact check? Okay, I'll look. I'll see if I can find something. Do on not that. ruin my memories of Blockbuster. <laughs> it was a wholesome place. It's like, have you seen that? Um, have you seen that news reporter that's like Amazon has taken over Walmart? And you know why? It's because Amazon will sell sex toys and Walmart refuses to sell sex. Like he's very mad about it. (laughs) It's great. You should look it up. He's on the news. Like it's wild. Oh, Jesus. No, you're right. Corporate policy. They wouldn't rent anything rated X or NC 17. Right. So, a lot of these video stores that still stayed around or stayed around out from the purview of Blockbuster was because they were adult movies. It was guys, I've got it. Let's buy Blockbuster from Dish. Okay. Let's change the corporate policy for three hundred million dollars, right? Because that's what the names were. No, dude, you still you still think it's worth three hundred million? That was in twenty ten. No, absolutely oh, yeah. not. That was in twenty ten. We could probably get it for a buck fifty. <laughs> Instead of Blockbusters, we could name it Nutbusters. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> big yikes oh that is a big yikes um so yeah if you're listening to the show now and you want to get in on an investment opportunity you can email me at cayman at i really wish you hadn't.com and that is to uh open blockbusters back up with adult dvds exclusively exclusively <laughs> and possibly naming it nutbusters yeah <laughs> <laughs> Oh, oh shit all right okay any other fun facts you have i got a couple go ahead you say you say a couple i'll say one that i really want to say okay uh so wayne hosinga um uh, he had the idea in the late 80s early 90s and uh, blockbuster was considering it until 1994 of opening a florida-based blockbuster theme park to uh, compete with universal I actually read about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it never happened, but you know, it, it could have been neat. Like if Blockbuster hadn't gone under, and... but what would it have been? I get, well, I'm you ever been to universal. I, it would have been universal. So, Oh, they would have just licensed like movie stuff. Yeah. 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 That's what I imagine at least. Well, wait. Okay. But this was before the Viacom thing. Like I could see it if it was like, Oh yeah. Viacom wants to like put a bunch of its properties in a theme park. I mean, I'm not saying it was a great idea. They abandoned it, and they they seem very eager to, to keep bad ideas. So, well, have you ever seen like the Disney numbers of like where they make all their money? Theme parks are surprisingly very profitable. Yeah, they're very very lucrative. Like I I figured that it would be like kind of a yeah. So they that's what I'm saying. Uh, all this going under, they might have been able to like keep the park open if they had that. I mean, if they'd been successful. Um, and with how much Wayne Huizinga liked making things or building things in Florida, it, it makes sense that he probably would have tried to compete with that Orlando market. Have you seen a picture of Wayne Huizinga? Yes. I'm just imagining, you know, like how when you walk in Disney World, there's like the brass statue of Walt Disney. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just Wayne Huizinga like eh, giving you finger guns. Huizinga Huizinga World. Huizinga Huizinga Dude, dude, his last name's impossible. Wayne War- Wayne's War- Oh my god, it'd just be Wayne's World. <laughs> Whoa, we just cracked it open. Holy shit. Yeah, anything else you got? You said you had something else. Uh, yeah, one thing that I really wanted to include in this episode, but like, I, I just was strapped for time. Did you read about them wanting to buy Circuit City? In like yes. 2008. Yes. And they're, yeah, like they're already going downhill and they're like, oh, well, they went bankrupt. Maybe we can. Um... Yeah, they were like, maybe we could just merge our stores and have like a blockbuster Circuit City hybrid. It's like, God, what? <laughs> it makes no sense. Other than that, I'm tapped. That's all I have on. Uh, that's all I have on Blockbuster for this week. Anything for you, Michael? Go out and support your local rental video rental place. You might find a movie that you didn't know existed or an adult movie or an adult movie (laughs) that you didn't know existed 
right uh so we're we're gonna try and do this fairly regularly this was our first episode uh we've got some more great topics coming up but if you do want to reach out to us if you have something in mind uh for i really wish you had an episode uh you can email us do, you, do we want to tell them who's what email we use in college we can do like a like a general one like uh podcast at i really wish you hadn't com and it'll email to all of us there we go all right email us at podcast at i really wish you hadn't com let us know any suggestions if you like the episode uh give us a like share it with your friends tell everyone that you know uh hopefully you know the quality will be getting better over the years but uh, uh we think that this is really good now and we're excited to get going with this i think it's perfect i don't think i don't think we're gonna improve i think it's perfect well i think that everything that i did was perfect but then you had to open your mouth so uh <laughs> i'm kidding michael you did you did great you did you did you did wonderful um also we got some social media out there so go follow us on twitter uh what's that tag there michael twitter is at i-r-w-y-h podcast okay and then we are on instagram at i really wish you hadn't and that's that's it it's just at i really wish you hadn't so i guess on that note uh that's the end and uh thank you for listening through with us i hope you learned a lot about blockbuster i really wish you hadn't is hosted by me michael bentley and kanan mcmahon we are produced by colin moore intro and outro music by tax story our cover art is by nick Please remember to subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, be kind, rewind, and as always, don't do anything I wouldn't do.